0: If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me just say a couple of things. Number one is um, thank you all for being very patient and versatile and accommodating in our uh, effort of being up here in the upper room. It's so fitting for the book of Acts. Um, but uh, also, if you can help us out if um, when you come in here, if there are seats. If you can eliminate as many seats in the middle, obviously, that you can. And leave ones on the outside, not necessarily right now, but just like in the future because we're going to be here for a little while. Just keep that in mind when you come in. Um, and then leave as many seats on the outside so that our guests that are coming in that aren't as familiar with it. Because if you've been to Mars Hill for a while, you probably know people. This isn't all that intimidating to you to come up here because you know most people, and you've kind of been up here before. Um, but you can imagine a visitor coming in for the first time. It's a little weird to walk in the door, have to go up a stairwell, and then come into this room uh, full of people that you don't know, and then to try and find a seat while everybody's standing up. We do have people that are trying to assist them to find that. So the ways that you can make that easier is by, number one, eliminating as many seats in the middle as you can so that the ones on the outside are easy for them to see. The other thing is when you're sitting down to um, try and... Right now, you're good, right? But when you're um, singing, don't put your Bible on seats that are open. Put them on the seat that you're sitting in or underneath it. That way, they can visually see... Those open seats and know that there's somebody living there, sitting there. But if you are like there's somebody in your family that's, you know, downstairs checking the kids in or getting some coffee and they are sitting there, then put your Bible or a piece of paper or something in that seat so that visually they can kind of see that. If we could kind of make that our MO from week to week, that would just help the people who are trying to help our guests find seats at the last minute to figure out which ones are open and which ones are not. And if you see them looking, just assist them by going, there's two right here or I've got four right here and that will help them out tremendously. That's the first thing. The second thing is, something you've heard before, we need children's volunteers, okay? And I just, we say that from time to time because there's always, life's always changing. There are people that move away, and, and they worked in our children's ministry for a while, and now they've gone. They've gone to another um, you know, city, and they're not here anymore. Uh, we have people that transition out of that ministry into other ministries. So there's always this ongoing need and y'all have always been really good about responding to us whenever we have said that and so i'm saying it again we need desperately need volunteers to help out in our children's ministry so if that's you and you can give at least one Sunday a month and can, can commit to that one thing, um, please see Caroline or see Joe, or you can write it on the little um, piece of paper there that's in the seat. You can just kind of indicate that, put your name and number on that, and you can drop that in the joy box on your way out. That would be great as well, and that would help us tremendously to accommodate the groups that are coming in. Uh, people don't realize y- y'all have a lot of kids. Um, we, when we compare Mobile to Fairhope, Uh, On a given Sunday morning, Mobile has more attendance than this group does. So in other words, in the worship service itself, Mobile has higher numbers. But when it comes to children's uh, ministry, we're dead even. Like we have as many children as they are bringing. And so it's up in the 100, over a 100 now that we're kind of averaging from week to week. That's a large responsibility, so the more people that can help out, that relieves the people who are already working, because we do have some people that are working two, three, sometimes four Sundays out of a month, and we're trying to give them a break. So if everybody can pitch in, everybody does one Sunday, uh, it kind of helps out and helps the flow of things. So if that's you, please don't hesitate. Just see somebody today before you leave and let them know that you're willing to help in some form or fashion. All right, that's all the business of the church right there. So let's move on to the text, which is the second order of business for this morning. Um, Acts chapter 1, verse 12 is where we're going to begin. Now Let's kind of set the scene. If you remember, the disciples have just come from this incredible experience of literally, literally, the text says they've been peering into heaven. Now, if you go back to those verses, you realize it does not say that they were looking into the heavens, plural, which is what you would always call the atmosphere. It says they looked into heaven. And that's where Jesus was going. And Jesus was being received by heaven. So there's this picture of the gates opening up, if you can envision that. The clouds opening up, if you want to see it that way. Jesus being enveloped in this cloud, ascending. It says he was lifted up. And so he's going to his rightful place on the throne in heaven. And and for a moment, the disciples were able to gaze into the greatness, the majesty of what heaven was. Probably just just peeking in the gate, just through the crack of a door of probably what their experience was. But that was enough to overwhelm them, to literally, angels came down and stood beside them and they were unaware of it. And the angels were like tapping him on the shoulder, going, Hey, why are y'all just standing there gazing into heaven? So they were so enthralled in what they saw, not just Jesus lifted up, but they literally were looking into heaven itself. And then this had to be so transformative that from this point on, even before the Holy Spirit comes, they seemed very determined about what life is about, what their goals are, and what they're passionate about. You don't see them going into the upper room and arguing about who's the greatest anymore, even though they've seen into the kingdom of heaven. So even before the Holy Spirit comes, that moment was so powerful that they have been marked, they have been changed, and they are obedient to what God called them to do, which was to go back to Jerusalem and to wait, which is where we jump into the text here today. Look at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem, From the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now, notice the order here Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew. James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now again, he's naming all 11 of the disciples there, but they're specific. Not that his readers weren't already familiar with who they were. I think there was a reason that he writes that because there's an order change, and we'll get to that in a moment. The next uh, part of that says, all these with one accord, not a hondo accord, but like you know, all together, in other words, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brother. So I want you to think for a moment. There's this picture of what's happening there in that upper room, and you have the disciples minus judas iscariot right which he's he's dead now so there's 11 disciples and then it says that you have the mother and brothers who are there as well so the family of jesus and then it mentions specifically the women Um, that were also a part of Jesus' earthly ministry. Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary uh, Cleopas, I think is her name. There's all those other women that we traditionally go to the Gospels, and you can see that they were a part of Jesus' ministry, Mary and Martha. All of those Marys, and then those other few extra people that were following him as well. So those women were named as a part of that as well. So you got three groups of people, the disciples, Jesus' family, and specifically the women that were a part of his earthly ministry as well. They all are now in that upper room. Now you say, well, what upper room is this? Is this the same upper room that they were in when they shared uh, the last supper together or shared the Passover meal? And I would say to you, that is a great question. I'm glad that you brought that up Uh, because it is pretty amazing that when you look at this, notice in the passage that it says the upper room. It doesn't say an upper room not a general. It's almost like it's talking about a specific upper room that the readers would be familiar with. And when you put all of this together, I think it's fairly fairly reasonable to assume that this probably is the same upper room that Jesus and his disciples shared the Passover meal together before he was um, turned over to the uh, temple uh, guards and and ultimately ended up before the Sanhedrin, ultimately ended up before Pilate, and then crucified. Um, Why do I think this? Well, the majority of these people were not from Jerusalem. His his followers were not from Jerusalem. The majority of them were from Galilee. Remember, even before this, the angels addressed them as men of Galilee. So this is not a place where they have a home. Now, the only other place they had was that upper room that Jesus had secured. Remember, it seems indicated by the Gospels that Jesus had gone through great lengths to secure this upper room for them. It almost seems like Very mysterious because Jesus says when you go to there, you'll see a man carrying a jar and talk to him and give him the code and the secret handshake and then he'll show you a room. Uh, But I I don't think it's really good to think of it that way. I think the better way of thinking of it is Jesus had made all these preparations way ahead of time. So the last time they were in Jerusalem, Jesus had set all of that up because he was looking so forward to sharing this Passover meal with them. And he knew what was ahead that he made all of these preparations. So think about the night that Jesus was arrested and all the disciples scattered. Well, Think about where did they go? Well, ultimately, I think a lot of them probably ended back up in that upper room where they just left from. That was a safe place for them to go and to hide out. And more than likely, that upper room became a place because, remember, our passage here today is not far removed from the actual events of the crucifixion. We're only 50 days, actually at this point, only 40 days removed from the actual resurrection crucifixion of Jesus. So I think it's safe to assume that that upper room may have been secured for a long time and that's a place that they kept going back to. Um, It's a place where they probably were when the women came back and told them that the resurrection had happened. And I think that's a safe place to say that this is where they are now. So the reason I make such a point of that is because can you imagine the feeling that that room brings to them? I mean, all the experiences they shared, all the conversations that happened there, all that Jesus taught them as he was walking them through the Passover meal and telling them that he was the fulfillment of these things. He was reminding them of things that were going to happen. They had no idea what he was talking about, that he was going to be turned over and that he was going to be crucified. And these are things that they heard him saying he was going to be betrayed. Lord, is it one of us? And, and so all of it was so mysterious to them. And yet, as the events unfolded, what they found was everything that Jesus said came about and was true. And it happened exactly the way that he said that it would. And so this is a place when they go back to it, I don't think they're carrying tons of shame. I think they're carrying this enlightenment that they now realize what he was talking about. They understand it. They've seen him now alive and well from the resurrection. They've heard him teach to them for over 40 days. And now they've seen him ascend into heaven. They've peered into the throne room of heaven itself. These people are ready for whatever is next. They are impassioned, they feel emboldened, and they are obedient because they do exactly what Jesus tells them to do, is to go back to this upper room that is so full for them of connection and vision and, and what Jesus called them to do, that that's probably the things that they were talking about, reminding themselves of the things that He taught them there, reminding themselves of all the events that happened over the last 40 days. And I told you to pay attention there to the order of the way that the disciples are mentioned, because if you look back at it, it mentions that there was Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and just to kind of bring your attention to it, if you go back to the Gospels, it's usually always Peter and Andrew, James and John, because they were brothers. But they're not associating them like brothers anymore. Now there seems to be an order that is being created here. Now an order not of importance but an order of roles because Peter does seem to take on the main role from this point until Paul comes on to the scene a little later in the book of Acts. Um, Peter is the main guy and so it seems that there are roles that are being distinguished here and that's why the order that they're presenting to us is being changed. And I think one of the main things that we feel here is that there is this feeling of expectation There's an expectation on the part of the disciples because of all that's happened and all that they've seen, they know that this waiting period is preparation for something that's coming. They've been told, go and wait until this gift from heaven is given to you. So this was a time for them to grow. It was time for them to revel in and talk about the experiences that they had had. It was time for them to share with one another both their miscomings and also their victories that they had experienced over the time that they had followed after Jesus. Maybe their misperceptions of what he had said now their understanding of what he said this is a great time for them to share to listen to one another That powerful moment of gazing into heaven and to see Jesus ascend and enveloped in that that cloud of the Shekinah glory of God had to be such an overwhelming experience that it only made those following 10 days of waiting even greater with expectation. The expectation was growing over those days, not waning until the Holy Spirit actually comes. Now again, look at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem for the mount called Olivet. Which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Now, I think the reason that he's mentioning the mountain here, I think a great indication there is to realize that they've been living, obviously, Israel, all the Israelites have been living between these two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount of Olives. Uh, Mount Sinai is where Moses ascended up. And when he came down, what did he have? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments that they could never keep. The Ten Commandments that they kept failing. And so their faith and their worth and their value kept coming for them and their ability to keep these commandments and yet they never could. Or they would just reinterpret them in a way that they could keep them but not the way they were originally intended. We see that with the religious leaders of Israel's past. So that first mountain was a picture of Moses ascending just like we see Jesus ascending on the Mount of Olives. But when Moses comes down he has the law. But Jesus doesn't come back down, but he sends another down. He doesn't send the law. He sends the Holy Spirit. I think that's in mind here. And I think you have to play off of those two mountains that they've been living in between. But something's different because when Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, it's disaster for them. They constantly fail. They constantly are taken into exile. They're constantly having to be rebuked because of their inability to keep these things. And their hearts are always wandering away from God, pursuing the otherworldly pursuits that were all around them. Yet what is amazing is from this point forward, these disciples who didn't get it before this experience on the Mount of Olives, now when the Holy Spirit comes, are completely different people. They are able to do exactly what God called them to do. They are able to do powerful, miraculous things Greater things than even Jesus did, which Jesus told them they were going to be able to do. And so again, what's the difference? The difference is the empowerment that the Holy Spirit gives versus the empowerment that the law gave. The law is still good because the law is reflective of God's character. But the law can't save us. The law is ineffective to come into us and empower us to actually keep it. That's different with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit given to us actually empowers us to do what God has called us to do. And so in essence, we've been living between these two mountains, but this is a demarcation in the spiritual journey and the spiritual growth of these men to the point that something significant happens at this point. It also mentions here in our passage that it was a Sabbath day's journey. Don't let that throw you off. All that means is, you remember the Pharisees were always big about what you could do and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath day? Well, they uh, literally narrowed down how many steps you could take on the Sabbath day. And how far you could literally walk was about two-thirds of a mile. So all he's doing here, Dr. Luke is telling us, that basically they walked about a Sabbath day journey. It doesn't mean this is even on the Sabbath day that they did it. It's just a way of indicating about how far they walked, about a Sabbath day journey. So they would have walked roughly from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. Now they've come From the Mount of Olives back to the upper room. Again, an indicator that I believe it's the same upper room because that would be about the same distance that they had that night when they went to the Mount of Olives and Jesus was arrested there. Now, look at verse 13 how this continues. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. So now they've made their way to this upper room. Now this upper room, whether it's the one we're thinking of or not, was definitely a very large room. We know that by the end of this, it seems like there's 120 people that can fit into this upper room. Now just to give you an idea of what this upper room must have been like, Back in that day, the more wealthy of the people who lived in this area would usually build their houses and usually have three levels to it. The first two levels were their living areas, okay? Sometimes the bottom level might be their living area, or if they were more wealthy and had animals, they might have a barn there and they would live on the second level. The third level, however, was usually for one of three things. It was either A, a place that they would use for their children to learn is almost like the way we would homeschool today and you maybe have a section of your house or a room that's kind of dedicated to that study a lot of times they would use that third room for that purpose so they would have their books that they would use and their studies would be laid out there and this is where the tutoring would happen for them um, secondly, it was a place where guests could come and stay. Uh, maybe you had visitors that were coming in for one of the seven feasts that were part of the... The three of them were pilgrimage feasts. So you had these people who were always coming in from somewhere else. So maybe they would let their family stay there. Or thirdly, a lot of times they would actually rent it out. So someone would permanently live up there or they would rent it out for special events. So that seems to be a place maybe of uh, where they are. So they've got the third floor of this. Usually it's accessed from stairs on the outside so you don't have to go into the house at all. So that third floor was basically a place where you could rent it out. And they were used to people who were not a part of the family staying up there. Okay, So we have at least at this point, we know there's 11 apostles. We know there's also mentioned the family of Jesus, which would be his, his mother and his brothers. And we also know that there are women who are mentioned here, and they name some of them. But we know there's probably other disciples that were there. And like I said, by the end of this, there's 120 people who are a part of the day of Pentecost as this thing begins to move. Now, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people with all kinds of different expectations, all kinds of journeys that have brought them there to that day. Think about that for a moment. What, what, what is it that kept them together for 10 days? I just want you to think about this for a moment. You don't know a whole lot of each other. and They probably didn't know a whole lot of each other either. I mean, they would probably spent some time together, but not large amounts of time together. These are very different groups of people. Okay, Remember, Jesus' mother and brothers didn't even believe he was the Messiah. So they haven't probably spent a whole lot of time with all the rest of these people. Now imagine spending 10 days together, 24 hours a day, nonstop. Can you imagine if I told you today, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to come in 10 days, going to visit this place, but y'all can't leave. Everybody has to stay here. We'll eat our meals together. We'll pray together. You know what? Y'all be excited about that for about mm, like three hours. And then after that three hours, that's where the personalities would start showing up, right? And then all of a sudden, it's like, we don't need to pray about this. We need to pray about that. We need, you know, all of a sudden, like, think about the time that you're spending together. And yet, that doesn't seem to be indicated here. They really were on the same agenda. They really had this same concept because they were probably overwhelmed with everything they experienced that the first thing they were thinking of was not arrogance, not my agenda. They were really about, let's see what God is going to do. And their prayers were focused on that so that they were 10 days together and they were all focused on the same thing, bathing it in prayer. I think that's a picture of that firm belief and that expectation that play hand in hand. A belief that what Jesus said he was going to do, he was going to do. And this growing expectation of what that's going to be like and what that would entail for them from that point forward. You know, from this point backwards the disciples were always thinking to themselves it was about what they could achieve and what they do and what value they have and could ascribe to themselves and now from this point forward they let all of that go I've shared this with you before but a lot of you probably weren't here when I did so I'm going to share it again but I remember going through this when I started the church Mars Hill Um, it was almost 20 years ago now in Mobile And when we were there, I remember specifically, this was about three to five years in. I can't remember exactly how long it was. But I remember that we were still in our original location, and the church was growing. Like, I remember the first thing I thought was, oh my gosh, this thing's never going to grow. And then it started growing fast, and I was like, oh my gosh, this thing's growing way too fast. And so no matter what happened, it was like I saw it as a negative. And I was carrying a lot of that weight myself, because the more it grew, the more responsibility I had, because I didn't have a staff. So I was over the children's ministry, the youth ministry, the preaching ministry. We had a part-time worship leader. And so the more it grew, the more responsibility I felt, and the more... I knew I can't do this. I'm not this person and I don't know anything about these different areas. And it all culminated one day when I got there and I was so overwhelmed, so stressed out that I found myself back in the kids area getting ready and I heard somebody come in the door and I jumped into the closet and I just pulled it. and Because I knew, I was like, well no one's going to come work with the children so no one will come and open this door And so I sat there with that great hope and expectation. I could hear them calling my name, Jack, Jack. And I just sat there and I was like, if there was a back door to this closet, I would be gone and no one would ever see me again. That's how I felt. And I remember in that moment, just like feeling such a coward, but feeling so overwhelmed that I didn't care. Um, God spoke to my heart and he said, son, just get out of my way and I'll do this. And, and I didn't even know what that meant, okay? But I can just tell you that it was something that washed over my soul to the point I was like, all right, if you've got this and you can handle this, then I can go out there and just be your puppet. But that's all I can do. And it was amazing from that point forward, the freedom that I began to experience, not not only as a pastor, but even as a teacher, because I felt so much weight, like I have to teach a message and, and hit that person and that person. I know what they're going through, and I would try and create a message that hit everybody's problems or everybody's expectations. And when I heard the idea of just getting out of the way, it freed me to just teach God's word. And what was amazing was people come up and go, man, that spoke to me, that spoke to me, that spoke to me. And I was blown away because I was like, I wasn't even thinking of you or you or your situation. I didn't even think of it applying to your situation, but I see now how it does. And it just reminded me and affirmed to me that it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what makes the Word of God come alive in people's hearts. So ultimately, the thing that we have to learn here is what the Scripture is calling us to is get out of God's way. Let him do what he wants to do. Just be that willing and available servant. And I really think this is the lesson that the disciples are learning here. They're realizing when they've seen into heaven that this is not on them, that there's plenty of power and there's plenty of ability in heaven to do what heaven wants to do on earth, that they are just invited to come along with this, this group and with this movement and to be a part of it because something changes from that day forward. It's not about increasing their belief. It's about acting on the belief that they already had. You know, really, if you think about it, that's a progression and a cycle that we constantly go through. A lot of times we begin to think about the Christian life is about increasing our belief. If I could just believe more, I could see God do things. But it's really not. It's really about acting on the belief that you already have. And then when you act on that belief, as small as it may be, that belief will grow because you'll see God's faithfulness and His His um, Him coming to your side and to your aid and seeing Him work in your life and through you. And then all of a sudden, with that in- increased belief, you now act on that bigger belief. And what happens is God shows Himself faithful again, and that belief grows more. And so this constant cycle that we're going through where we believe more and we act on that belief and our belief grows, we act on that belief and our belief grows, and That's a process of spiritual growth. Our belief grows along with our ability to act in faith on the things that we believe. Now let's take a look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and... His brothers. So there are three things I think we can see here that are very helpful in our application of these verses. It is the emphasis on these three things, faithfulness, unity, and what I call cravings. Okay. So faithfulness, unity, and cravings. First of all, let's think about the idea of faithfulness in relationship to this idea of expectation. So I, I've kind of labeled this, for better or for worse, that faithfulness is more of the doing and the expectation is more of a feeling. Now, the reason I've labeled it that way is is not uh, deeply spiritual. It's more of trying to relate the difference of the way I'm seeing this and applying this. So the expectation is a feeling that you have. Um, you don't ever go out and do an expectation. You have an expectation. So an expectation is something that you feel inside. You feel something should happen a certain way or you have a hope or a desire for something to happen a certain way. That is expectation. But faithfulness, I think a lot of times we think of faithfulness as this mental assent, as this thinking or belief that we have, but faithfulness actually isn't. Faithfulness is either doing or not doing. Think about that right so if you're faithful to what god's called you to do you're you're acting on that Or if you're faithful to what Christ called you to do in this moment, you're not doing anything. You went to the upper room and you're waiting. So faithfulness is either action or lack of action based on the expectation that we have or the feelings that we have. The feelings hopefully are controlled by our relationship with God and not by the world or our own hearts because those are deceptive. But when our expectations are led by the Spirit of God, then our faithfulness will be related to those expectations. In other words, faithfulness is acting those things out. When we say someone is faithful in their marriage, we are saying that they are not out doing something they shouldn't be doing. And we are also including that that they are doing what they should be doing, right? They are loving the person that they've been given. They are faithful to that. They are committed to that relationship. So faithfulness is both doing and not acting on our selfish motivations. So Again, I think faithfulness and this idea of doing, expectation, of feeling, these things come together because expectation is always best complemented by faithfulness. And in this instance, it's faithful prayer. So their expectation of the kingdom of God coming, their expectation of what the Holy Spirit coming to them, being visited upon them, uh, indwelling them, they had no idea what that looked like. They've never experienced that. They don't know what that is, but their expectation was actually precipitated with this faithfulness in prayer they knew that the spirit was coming because jesus promised and they've seen enough to know that jesus when he says he's going to do something he's going to do it and so how did they act on that they act, acted by doing what jesus called them to do which was waiting and by acting in faithful prayer so their faithfulness was their action based on their expectation there Prayer, I believe, is the chief exercise of faith. And John Calvin agrees with me on this, okay? So um, he really does. This is the picture of it. I think it's so true what he points out. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. So faith we think of as going out there and really doing something powerful for God. But really the chief exercise of faith is prayer. That's what we see complemented with it all the time. Matter of fact, think about the things that you believe, you say you believe. Now, if you say that you believe something, that should be paired with a prayer life that substantiates that belief. If you say, man, I really believe in the kingdom of God, and I believe that Christ can save lost souls, but your prayers don't ever reflect that you're praying for lost souls and your prayers don't reflect that you really expect the kingdom of God to come through you or to be exhibited in any way around you, your, your action, your faithfulness does not match up with your expectation there. Do you see that? What you say you believe is not imaged in your prayer life, and your prayer life should be reflective of the things that you say that you believe. And what we see here is there was a strong commitment to prayer. The text literally reads here, they were continually devoting themselves to, and what's interesting is there's a definite article there, the prayer. So they were continually devoting themselves to the prayer. Now does that mean they were praying one prayer? No, I don't think it necessarily indicates that, and it may not be indicating anything of great significance. But let me just go and just kind of for a moment reflect and think. There was a time when the disciples went and asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus' response was, when you pray, he said, pray like this. He didn't say pray this, the Lord's Prayer. He said pray like this, which it should be called the model prayer. Some Bibles are actually updated now, and the label will say, not the Lord's Prayer, it'll say the model prayer. Because Jesus wasn't telling them to pray this prayer. He was telling them to pray like this. And so when we think about the prayer, what does it say? Um, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and power and glory forever and ever. Amen. I believe that these disciples, and this is just my belief and I could be wrong, I, I think that they must have been praying according to how Jesus taught them to pray. I don't think they were praying those words specifically, but I think they were going through and praying for God's kingdom to come. I think they were praying for the forgiveness of sins of people who had offended them, and people who had had ill will against them. I think they were praying for God's provision for their life. I think they were praying that they would not be tempted to follow the route that Judas had followed that ended his life. I think they had all these things in mind, which are all the events that were taking place, and Jesus specifically told them to pray this way, and now it says they were praying, continually devoting themselves to the prayer. So, this was their mindset, not just words they were uttering from their mouth. Uh, it reminds me of what Luke says at the very end of his gospel. And the, go back to Luke chapter 24, towards the end. He's telling us about these same events there, the conclusion of his gospel. And he says this, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Or another way of saying that is praying. To God. So they were both in the temple praying and they were in the upper room praying. I think this is a picture of no matter where they were, they were dedicated and devoted to prayer. Whether it was temple or houses, they were always focused on God in prayer, especially after the Holy Spirit comes. So this connection to the outpouring of God's Spirit is this persistent, consistent prayer. In Luke chapter 11, again, notice chapter 11, way earlier on in the gospel of Luke, in the middle of Jesus' ministry, it says in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we have to be willing to ask, but the key is persistence there. So how often do we go about our day forgetting what we prayed that morning? Have you ever done that? Literally prayed something that morning. You did your devotional and you prayed. And if someone asked you later on that day, what did you pray that morning? You had no idea. Then the question really becomes, don't hear this from a judgmental attitude. It's more of just trying to get us to reflect. What does that say about us if we can't even remember what we prayed? It means that we don't have a really strong connection to our prayers, that we're not praying of anything that is such significance that we're thinking about it the rest of the day. It's like this momentary moment with God that doesn't impact the rest of the way of we're walking and living the rest of that day. So somehow our prayers have to be something that we carry with us. Not verbally necessarily, but we carry with it in the, this idea of passion, this idea of burden that we're constantly thinking. If you're praying for the loss and the kingdom of God to come in the morning and you carry that burden, that passion with you, then as you go throughout the rest of the day, what are you constantly thinking of? Where's the opportunity Who is God bringing across my path? Where's my opportunity to share the gospel? Where's my opportunity to see the kingdom of God come? You're constantly thinking about what you're praying about. But if you separate those two things, then you can pray a prayer and then forget about it and move on with your day. That's when you're in danger of becoming religious. You pray something, but you're not really connected to what you're actually praying. See, this this picture here is that we have to be willing to ask, but that key is persistence. Just um, in this passage, when we think about what happened before this, Jesus is given an illustration about a man who um, had a guest who came in the middle of the night. And it says that... Um, so he had to go to his neighbor because he didn't have enough food to feed them. So he's banging on the door, and he says he keeps banging on the door because the neighbor would not come in and and open the door, even though it was a friend of his, like a neighbor was a good friend, but the guy still didn't care because he didn't want to get up out of his bed. But the guy just knocked all the louder. The guy finally gets up, and he's like, what do you need? He's like, I've got guests come over. I can't feed them. I need some food. He's like, yes, here, have all the food that you want. Please don't knock on my door again, right? That's the picture that you have there. Now, Jesus had just given this illustration. Now, look at what it says in verse uh, 8 of Luke chapter 11. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now think about those words right there. Those words are actually in the original language put in a way that it's continual action. So if you were to read it in that way, here's what it actually says. And I tell you, keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking, and you will find it. Keep on knocking, and it will be open to you. Now, you say, well, why would Jesus do that? I mean, if God is this good father, which he actually goes and says, if God, if you are evil people, and you know how to give good gifts to your children, then doesn't God know how to give even greater gifts to his children? But let me just play with that for a moment and just give you an illustration. Me, being the evil father that I am, I still know how to give good gifts to my children. But there are also times that I will not give gifts to my children because I want to build expectation. They will say, like, oh, I really want something. I really, why do you want that? What would that be good for? I want them to think, you know? Now, could I immediately give it to them? Yeah, but I want them to think through the process because A, it either is they won't really appreciate it if I just give it to them in that moment, or B, in my mind, I know they really don't want this in that moment they want it because I've been there, done that, but it doesn't actually play out and it's something you throw away after you have it for two weeks and you just wasted a whole bunch of money. So what you will do is you will wait and you will let them keep asking, keep asking, keep asking. And in that process of asking, it's not that I am unwilling to give to them, it is I am trying to create expectation and perspective in that child to understand whatever gift this is that I'm giving to them. And I think God does the same thing with us. The reason he invites us to be persistent is because we learn something in that persistence. We learn something about what it is we're asking for and how valuable it is. Because if you ask, ask, and ask, and then you quit asking, You probably didn't really want that thing to begin with. But if you ask and you ask and you keep asking and you keep asking and you keep asking, God could be using that to build in you an expectation before He gives. Again, it doesn't change the heart of God because what God wants and what God gives is according to His sovereign will. And the beauty of that is God knows what is good and what isn't, and He gives His children good gifts But at the same time, I think there is this learning that we can have in the process of our praying. The second thing that we have here is unity. It tells us that they were all joined together constantly in prayer. Now, the word community is actually made up of two words, which is common and unity, Okay? That's where you bring them together. So in other words, there's some kind of unity around some common purpose. We call community because we usually have in common the roads that we share. Sometimes it's the neighborhoods that we live in, the schools that we go to, the restaurants that we visit. We have that in common because we all share them. So we live in a common unity, a community. And we also have a community of believers. We have something in common, even though we may be very different and we may come from different cities even. But yet we come here because there's something that we have in common that creates our unity, and that is our faith in Jesus Christ. So when you stop and think about this, it's pretty amazing. It is community that God is creating despite diversity. Because these people are very different. I mean, the apostles are all arguing about who is more valuable and who should be sitting on the throne to the left and to the right, and who should be the peons in the kingdom. I mean, they're all fighting for those value places, right? The family, these are the people who thought Jesus was crazy. These brothers are like, this Messiah thing's gone to your head. Mary's like, maybe you need to tone it down a bit. You know what's interesting about this for, for, for the Catholic perspective? Do you know this is the last time Mary's ever mentioned in the New Testament? this this verse right here. Last time you ever hear the name uh, Mary, the mother of God. Now, I think that's significant because I think she is this incredible figure of a faithful woman who God chose to use to bring the Messiah to the world, but yet as the church begins, she fades into the background, not because she's not important, but because she is not highlighted to the point of she's better than everybody else. Do you see that? I think it's pretty amazing that she's never mentioned throughout the rest of the book of Acts. So unity and diversity have to work together, uh, Martin Luther says, or one, well, I'm sorry, Warren Wiersbe says this, or one will destroy the other. He says unity without diversity is uniformity, but diversity without unity is anarchy. So think about that for a moment. Unity and diversity must work together or one will destroy the other. If you think about the the aspect that he gives us here, unity without diversity is uniformity. In other words, that's where we say, hey, you have to dress this way, look this way, believe this way. Well, before long, everybody in this group will look exactly the same because we're against the same things and we're for the same things. Well, that creates uniformity and we lose the diversity. But diversity without unity is anarchy. So that's where everybody wants to do whatever they do, and we welcome any kind of lifestyle, any kind of dress code, any kind of belief system. Everybody come in because we love diversity, but there is no unity. There's nothing that we're rallying around. There's nothing that we hold in common. That's anarchy. So the Spirit of God is what brings unity to the church, even though the church is very diverse. He brings it to us through conviction, through humility, through grace, and through that we come to regard others as more important than ourselves. And the results of this are phenomenal. As you go through the rest of the book of Acts, you're going to see that they people were from all different walks of life giving what they had to better the other person's experience. The third thing I want to point out is cravings. God creates out of nothing in the very beginning, doesn't he? Uh, The scripture tells us in Genesis 1, ex nihilio, God speaks everything into existence. So God is a kind of God who creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, Martin Luther says, God can make nothing out of him. I love that perspective because it's so true. God creates out of nothing. So until you become nothing, God can create nothing out of you. But when we become nothing, now we become the great material that God needs to create something because that's what God's in the business of, is creating something out of nothing. These band of followers who found themselves in the upper room understood this from their own experience. They had nothing to offer God. They peered into the throne room of heaven. They have nothing to offer God. They knew that by themselves they could do absolutely nothing. Now they are in a great place to be used by God for something. So as believers we have received the full benefit of Christ's body and blood yet the truth is we can never really get enough of Christ. (laughs) Isn't that an interesting paradox? You get the fullness of Christ when you get saved and yet in your life and your walk you can never get enough of Christ. It's like this ongoing process that you get what you need but you're always having to stay connected to have the things you need to keep going. I'm going to give you an illustration, whether it's a really good one or not, I don't know. It's from my own life, but it's this coffee cup that I, sh- I have. I got this coffee cup a long time ago, um, but I use it constantly. This coffee cup cost $100, but I've had it for a long time. The reason it costs $100 is it keeps your coffee hot constantly. I mean, piping hot how many of y'all suffer from cold coffee? You put it in your coffee cup, and even though you warm your coffee cup up a little bit, you drink, but you're reading a book. And so you're reading, you're into it, and you just want to sip on a little bit. And then before long, it's cold. This thing keeps it hot. You see that little light that keeps coming on? It's telling you, hey, I'm ready, man. Just put some coffee in here. I got it going. Now, this is the thing that charges it because it has a little battery inside of it that keeps everything warm, but it'll only work for an hour. So to keep your coffee piping hot for an hour, but after the hour, maybe even 45 minutes comes along, it loses its power, and what happens is your coffee will eventually become cold unless you have this part, which is the little saucer that goes with it. So when you put it on there and this thing is plugged into the wall, then it's constantly recharging this battery. So if you're actually close to it, you can have it sitting off to the side, and you can be drinking your coffee, and you can just set it off to the side on that thing, and it constantly recharges that battery. So you could literally drink from this cup and have hot coffee all day long, and it would never, ever get cold. Now, you also could spend a little time away from it. So let's say you have it sitting in your living room, and you want to go read in your um, den for a little while, and go grab a book, and you're looking. You can take your coffee with you, and you can sip on it, and it's going to stay hot for about 45 minutes. But you eventually got to make your way back to this little area and put it back on the saucer so it can recharge itself. The reason I tell you that is I think this is really a strong picture, at least for me, of what we are called to do. It's like the coffee is the gospel. It's the goodness that we have to share with everyone else. We are kind of like the cup in the sense of we are the ones that are taking it to the rest of the world. But this is the Holy Spirit or Jesus and our connection to our power. And if we are not connected to that power, eventually we will wane. Eventually we will grow cold. We have to keep coming back, have to keep connecting back to that power source, or else we are going to be ineffective at a certain point. But if we keep coming back and we stay connected to this... Then we always have something good to offer to everyone else. Why? Because we are connected to that power source. Does that make sense? And I believe that that is a picture of what's happening here in this passage. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, it's like that's the power that we receive. And as long as we stay connected with the Holy Spirit, no matter where we go, we can be of benefit to others. But as soon as we lose that connection and we try to do things on our own, we might last a little while off of the last experience that we had or the last moment that we had or the last command that Jesus gave to us. But eventually what happens is we grow cold. And when we grow cold, we begin to become selfish again and self-centered. And we begin to see the world the way we want to see it because we've lost that connection to the power. And I really believe that this is what this passage is calling us to. The picture of two mountains is what we started with. and That's what I want to end with today. The first mountain, the law comes down. And ultimately, if you think about it, from that perspective of the law, what you do indicates who you are. You are either holy or you are unholy. You are either righteous or you are unrighteous. But the second mountain, the Mount of Olives, where Jesus ascends and then the Holy Spirit comes down. Think about this. What you are indicates what you do. Or who you are indicates what you do. Do you see the difference in those two? One of them is what you do indicates who you are. That's based on the law. And I can't keep the law, so I'm always unrighteous. But when the Holy Spirit comes, that makes me a child of God. That makes me redeemed. That makes me forgiven. That empowers me with kingdom power. Now, who I am indicates what I do. And that's why we see effective disciples instead of the bumbling disciples that we see beforehand. Because of the Holy Spirit, because of who they are, they begin to act out of their identity. What a beautiful picture. I hope that encourages your heart today. I don't know where you are, or what you're going through, but I hope that gives you something to think about. Especially, I want you to think about your prayer life and that connection to what are you praying connected to um, what you think about the rest of the day? Are your prayers effective to really set the trajectory of what you think about the rest of the day? If not, go back and examine that and go, how can I pray more effectively that it impacts the way I see the rest of my day? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for a word that reminds us of your goodness, your sovereignty, your um, mercy and grace that you extend to us through your Holy Spirit, a gift that we did not deserve, and yet a gift that empowers us to be effective for the kingdom. Lord, we want to be not only the recipient of good things, but we also want to be the overflow and the giver of these good things to the people around us, to the community that you've called us to. We, we share a commonality with many people around us who are lost, and we share a commonality with the people that we gather with on Sundays around our salvation and around our belief in Jesus. And so I pray that the commonality that we have here would be taken back to the community we find ourselves dwelling in and that we could be the ones sharing this life-changing gospel, having something really passionate that we can share with them, that we love, that we think about. Lord, I pray that you give us a vision to recognize those who are hurting, those who are lost. Give us the words to share with them, powerful words of transformation that will lead them to repentance and to the forgiveness of sins and ultimately to their restoration and adoption into your kingdom. God, ultimately as we study the rest of this book of Acts, I pray that you would help us to synthesize these truths, these themes of prayer and community and Holy Spirit power. Lord, may these things never leave us the same again. May we be transformed as we walk through this, progressively transformed. Every time we hear, we listen, our belief grows and our action grows from that belief. Lord, may you receive all that is yours. In Jesus' name, amen.